You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, church. My name is Cheryl, and today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. These are the true words of the living God. Being, hello? Being tall is not that great. I'll uh, touch on that later. Thank you, Cheryl. I know what all of you are thinking. You're wondering, why was the scripture reading so short? Well, uh, it's actually not short this morning, because this morning we are starting the series on 1 Samuel, and I'm here to introduce the book of 1 Samuel to you, which means that we are covering the entire book of 1 Samuel today. So I originally submitted 31 chapters, about 100 slides of size 2 font, to Ohana and Sean, but they told me that I couldn't do that, so I gave one verse. Now, I I think this one verse captures very well um, the theme of the whole book of 1 Samuel, and so we'll get to that later, so you'll you'll see why we chose that. Um, Just a a quick note that uh, because we're covering a lot uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, I'm going to be jumping around a lot, so please stick close to your Bible. Um, I'll be calling out the, the chapter and the verses uh, for each reference, and they will also be on the slides behind me, so feel free to, to pay, attention, uh, pay attention to that as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to introduce this series. Uh, I think it's going to be wonderful, and what we're going to do today is I'm going to help walk you through just some of the themes that I think are overarching the book of 1 Samuel, so that when we go through each passage week in and week out, you can think back to some of these themes and, and stay grounded in what the true purpose of this book is. Okay, so let's begin. There's a lot to get through. Um, 1 Samuel Uh, The events of this book took place in about 1000 BC, so about 3000 years ago. And in the context of the Bible's larger narrative, uh, you have God brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, right? And he brings them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And we see this in the book of Exodus uh, and in the book of Joshua. And then for many years, the nation of Israel is led by judges. And we see this in the book of Judges, of course. And these judges were leaders that were chosen specifically by God, each one of them, to help deliver the people of Israel from some kind of spiritual difficulty or physical difficulty like like war. But the judges were not kings, right? They didn't have a royal bloodline. They didn't have governments. uh, They didn't establish that kind of authority. So 1 Samuel records the history of Israel as they transition from a time of judges to a time of kings. The contents of this book are going to be communicated through amazing stories. Some of the best stories in the Bible are in this book. It's it's really exciting. Um, It's it's rich with human experience that I think a lot of us will be able to connect with for better and for worse. But I don't want you all to be distracted by the entertainment of it, okay? Um, The characters in this book, and we're going to spend a lot of time on the characters today, They should not be measured by their entertainment levels or their success or failure. They really should be measured by how much they follow God. God is the true character of this story. Now, this book, I think, can be broken down into three sections, three narrative sections that are all in sequence. And coincidentally, those each identify with a character that is prominent within 1 Samuel. And our three characters are Samuel, Saul, and David. And those are my three points for the sermon today. So let's jump into the first one. Samuel, chapters 1 through 8, establishing God as king. Now, in a book that is full of 
kings and warriors, 1 Samuel begins, interestingly, with a woman who, named Hannah who is grieving over her barrenness. She cannot conceive, despite her best efforts with her husband, and she's heartbroken over it. And she prays earnestly to God, and he blesses her with a son. Now, Hannah, she takes this son, and she commits him to the service of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, after all this happens, she has this famous, heartfelt prayer of praise to God. Now, I want to read part of it to you. So just verses 9 and 10. She says, he, God, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's a beautiful prayer. And it's interesting because it serves as this prophetic underpinning of the entire book of 1 Samuel. And it's this, it says this, God honors those who are faithful and he brings down those who reject him. In other words, God is in control. He is the narrator of this story. Not just of 1 Samuel, right, but of all of history. Now, Hannah's prayer also serves as a prophecy for the greater narrative of the Bible as well because it points to Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of God's greater narrative. So here, in the midst of 1 Samuel, where we have all these larger-than-life characters, there's Hannah, and she stands out as this humble faithfulness, this character of humble faithfulness towards God. Now, who is her son? Well, of course, it's Samuel. Samuel is her son. And he turns out to be one of the most faithful judges of the Bible. And he's the last judge of the Bible. Samuel, this character, he's marked by a reverence for God's word and following God's commands. He urges the people of Israel to commit themselves to the Lord that has been faithful to them for so long. And this is a very tumultuous time for the Israelites. They are constantly at war with the Philistines throughout this book. And after a particular series of fighting, Samuel calls Israel together. And in chapter 7, verse 3, 7-3, Samuel calls the Israelites to turn away from the ways of these foreign countries around them and their gods and to direct their hearts to the Lord and to serve him only. But, the people of Israel, as they are wont to do in the Bible, if you haven't noticed, they have their hearts set elsewhere. They have other ideas in mind. Israel, Israel sees these nations around them, and they're jealous of one thing in particular. They want a king. They want a king. But this is wrong because God, he sets out the nation of Israel to be different. In Exodus 19, he told them to be a holy nation, meaning set apart. That's what holy means. They're, they're not meant to be like other nations. So naturally, Samuel's upset. What's happening over there? Uh, <laughs> uh, Samuel's upset, right, because the Israelites aren't listening to anything that he is saying. And so he brings this to God, right? He's upset, and he brings it to God. And God says to him, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's kind of a surprising response, right? God says, give the people what they want. Now, before we judge the Israelites, I think that we can probably relate to this. I think we often, in a way, do the same thing. 
Now, I'm American. You might be able to tell from my accent. Um, now, I'm not making a political statement here, but I don't think that U.S. political leadership on the whole would be something that the nation of Israel would have been jealous of, right? We, uh, or meaning America, is on the cusp of another presidential election, right? And there's a nation of 350 million people with the world watching that are all asking the same question. Who will bring America restoration and flourishing? America is saying, give us a worthy leader. But we do this in a smaller way as well, don't we? We do this in our jobs. Give me a worthy boss. Give me a worthy CEO. We do it in our homes. Give me a worthy parent. Give me a worthy spouse. Someone who can lead me, who can restore me, who can serve me in all the ways that I desire. Now, these are not inherently wrong, of course. They're only wrong if it neglects what Samuel works so hard to get across to the people. Samuel, he stands alone stating clearly to the people of Israel and to us in this book that what we need most is to follow God and to recognize him as king in our hearts. My friends, no normal person can lead you to paradise. And so throughout the remainder of 1 Samuel, Samuel will be the one to boldly proclaim God's commands. He's going to call out sin in Israel's leaders, and he will remind the people of what God has done for them. He will urge them to follow God with their hearts. And I think this can be best summarized in his final address to the people, which is in chapter 12, and I'll just read verse 24. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully, faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. So again, Samuel's words throughout this book are a reminder to establish God as the king of our hearts. Now, our next character does not do this so well, not to spoil it, but our next character is Saul, seeking kingship over God. This is chapters 9 through 15. The Lord, of course, delivers on the people's request, as he said he would, and he appoints Saul to be king over Israel. Now, to put it simply, Saul is a very impressive man, and we see this in chapter 9. There's a couple of things that I'll point out, a few descriptors. Uh, in verse 1, it says that his father was a man of wealth, so he comes from money. It says that he's handsome and tall. Verse 2, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Even Samuel was quite impressed with Saul. He says in chapter 10, verse 24, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? He's speaking to the people. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Okay, let me address the giraffe in the room. Uh, Samuel's talking about height here. I'm quite tall, okay, but I'm here to tell you that Samuel is wrong. Being tall is not that great, okay? Airplanes are uncomfortable. It's hard to find clothes. I'm always hitting my head on lights that are dangling in restaurants in, in Singapore. The worst one of all is when I get on the bus and I'm standing in the middle of the bus and all the people start flooding in the front and they're giving me that look like, hey man, you gotta move back, you know? I can't move back. There's not enough room. My head hits the, t the ceiling. I'm like standing back there like this. It's not fun, okay? 
So funnily enough, growing up, um, my brother is quite a bit shorter than me, and he actually made fun of me for being tall. And he called all these problems giant problems. So he says that I have giant problems. All right, so joking aside, I think Saul is this character that many of us would probably, if we're being honest, we would like to be. He's impressive, right? He's impressive in a worldly sense. Some of us may actually want to be taller, or maybe we want to be better looking, or we want to be wealthy like he was, or maybe we just want to be feared and respected. Simply, in some way, we want to stand out from the crowd. And at the outset, Saul seems like the type of person that many of us would want to be. He's impressive. But Saul has giant problems, and he has giant problems. He's, fa- he's flawed, right? Now, I want to take us on a journey to examine Saul a little more carefully, to dig a bit deeper into this character. So we'll go to chapter 13. Um, as I mentioned before, the Israelites during this period, they're constantly warring with the Philistines. And in chapter 13, verse 5, it says, The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore and multitude. That is a lot of military power. And Saul, he gathers what he can as king to fight against them, but it is not much. It does not compare at all. It's like if Palau Ubin became its own country and decided to go to war with Singapore. Okay? They do not stand a chance. And Samuel, he tells Saul to wait for him okay, before going into the battle. But, but Samuel doesn't show up on time. He's like stuck at Changi Point Ferry Terminal. He, he missed his boat. He's not there, and Saul's freaking out, right? But Saul, he does something that is plainly sinful. Only priests were to offer sacrifices, and Samuel was both a judge and a priest. But Saul, who is not a priest, decides to perform the sacrifices himself. So Samuel shows up, and he says literally, what have you done? And from our scripture reading that Cheryl read for us, starting in 13.13, Samuel says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. But Saul, he's, he's not immediately removed from the throne, so this disobedience, unfortunately, it continues. And in chapter 15, God sends Saul to commit the Amalekites to total destruction. Now, the Amalekites were the ones that attacked Israel when they were coming out of Egypt, when they were weak and weary and had just escaped slavery. So God wants them to be destroyed. Now, Saul goes and he defeats the Amalekites, but he does not completely destroy them. In fact, he, he spares the best of their animals and he even spares their king. And he claims that he wants to use these animals for sacrifice to God. That's what he says. And then when Samuel confronts him about this, Saul actually argues with Samuel, and he makes all these excuses for what he's done. And this is what Samuel says to him finally in response. Samuel says, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And then ultimately he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So because of Saul's repeated disobedience, God rejects him as king. Why though? Why? If we dig deeper, is God really so harsh that a couple of mistakes like this would cause God to reject him as king? Is that what we're looking at here? Well, I don't think so. The text is very clear, I think, that it wasn't just disobedience. Saul actually rejected God first. But I think Saul's response to God's rejection makes the problem pretty clear. And this is in verse 30 of chapter 15. Saul says to Samuel, after this happens, he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. So Saul has just been rejected by God as king in Israel, what should he do? He should step down, right? He should abdicate. God says, you, will not, you are not king. But he doesn't. He, Saul begs Samuel multiple times, actually, to honor him in front of the people. He, he desires to use Samuel's standing before God and before the people as some kind of political tool. Saul's faith is just a show. And so are you guys, are you seeing Saul's motives here? Saul was more interested in his will than in God's will. Like the people, he wants a king that is not God. It's himself. God is clear in these verses that he does not want a show. He doesn't want some outward display of faith. It says, right, to obey is better than sacrifice. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. God doesn't want our actions. He wants our hearts. This is a serious point, I think, because the character of Saul is a warning to us to examine our hearts. Are we surrendered completely to God, or are we seeking worldly impressiveness? Saul, I think, had every reason to be committed to God. He was born with these great physical qualities. He was made the king of a nation. He was given wealth and power, all from God, right? He did nothing to deserve these things. And yet his, his heart cried out that it wasn't enough. Friends, let's look at ourselves. Even greater than these things that Saul was given, God has lavished us with eternal forgiveness of our sins through the death of of his son, Jesus. He has given us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it begs the question, what more can Christ do to show you that he is worthy to follow? What impressive life are you waiting for God to bless you with before you will start, start to follow him? Now, for some of us, we are maybe living in blatant sin and disobedience to God. Our hearts are just entirely cold and hardened to his love and his grace. And, and I pray that the love and sacrifice of Jesus for you would warm and soften your heart, that you would understand the true depths and beauty of the gospel. Now, for others of us, some of us in this room that may be Christians, I think it's probably more subtle. I think we're probably a bit deceived. 
Saul actually, I think, had some pretty good excuses, right? He could say, well, the Philistines are about to destroy us, and Samuel's uh, missed his boat, so I'll just do the sacrifices myself, right? He could have said, why do we let all these good animals go to waste? We can sacrifice them to God. But here's the thing. Disobeying God, even under an illusion that it is for some perceived greater good, is not honoring to him. It's not acceptable to him. Like Perch talked about last week from 1 Corinthians 11, we have to examine ourselves carefully. We have to examine our hearts to see where we are rejecting God and his word. This is a great sniff test for this. Do your actions make you look impressive or do they make God look impressive? So let's remember Samuel's words. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. God cares about our hearts. And this next character is a wonderful reflection of that. So we're going to move to our last point, which is on David. This is chapter 16 to 31, a king of humility and faithfulness. So God sends Samuel to find Saul's replacement. And Samuel goes to Jesse and his sons. And while Samuel is looking at one of Jesse's sons, who's very impressive looking, like Saul, God says to Samuel in 16.7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Proof, being tall does not matter. But it's quite explicit here, right? Our outward appearance can be impressive in every which way, but God looks at our hearts. And so while God rejects Saul because of his heart, he chooses David because of David's heart. And from this point to the rest of 1 Samuel, David, David will be examples to us of what it looks like on the outside when you have a heart for God on the inside. It's marked by humility and faithfulness towards God. So as soon as Samuel examines uh, David, God says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And so right there, David is anointed by Samuel as king. Now, David is, of course, aware that he has been chosen as king, but he doesn't straight away become king. No, no. His path to royalty is long and arduous. In fact, it's the remainder of 1 Samuel. So if you think he's going to become king in 1 Samuel, spoiler, he's not. It took about 15 years before David would sit on the throne. And this is how the journey begins with this event that I'm about to tell you about. In God's providence, Saul is afflicted with an evil spirit, and he seeks a musician to soothe him. And of all the people in Israel, thousands of LinkedIn profiles, who's the one who's recommended to him? David. And it says in 1623, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So again, David knows that he's the rightful king. He's the rightful, it's his throne. And, and what does he do when he's called upon? He serves the rejected king, Saul. It's pretty amazing, right? So imagine for you, right? Imagine you have a terrible boss, a horrible boss, okay? And your CEO 
comes to you and he or she says to you, we see incredible potential in you and I have personally chosen you as the replacement for your boss. And then there's no news, it just goes silent. And to make matters worse, your boss calls you up, he or she, and says, they invite you into their office and they say, hey, I've been in a really bad mood lately and I need somebody to cheer me up. So I've chosen you, here's a ukulele, I need you to play this for me. That's crazy, right? That's effectively what's happening here. The, imagine the faith and humility that it would take to serve Saul like this. Now, the next story I'm not going to touch on very much. It's, it's David and Goliath. I think most of you know the story. Um, but I'll, I'll just read what David actually says to Goliath uh, when, he's, when he's standing before him on the battlefield. This is what David says in uh, 1746. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Man, can you imagine standing before this killing machine and you say that? That takes a lot of faith, and that's faith that's not pointed at himself. He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David is pointing to God. David trusted in the Lord. Now, after this incident with David and Goliath, Saul, he begins to hate David because this makes David quite famous. So much so that he sets out on multiple missions to have David killed. Now, Saul starts doing some horrible things. At one point, he actually has 85 priests murdered because just one of them help to feed David. It's horrendous. It's a horrible thing that Saul has done. And I, I think it's a sign of how his self-preservation and his rejection of God has consumed him to the point of great evil. So David, he's suffering at the hands of Saul. The people around him are suffering at the hands of Saul. And what happens is twice David finds himself in an advantageous position to have Saul killed. And twice he spares him. On the second occasion, in chapter 26, David stands over Saul while he's sleeping. He has a spear within reach, and this is what David says. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. And then he leaves. Now, we're not just talking about a bad boss anymore. Saul has done horrible things to David and the people that David cares about. Saul has waged full-on war against David. He's murdered people. He's tried to murder David. He has pursued him for years. It's horrible. And God said that David would be king, right? Now, this is the second time that he's been given an opportunity to make that happen. Just one thrust of the spear, and it would all be over. His reign as king would begin, and the world would be rid of Saul's evil. It seems like the logical thing to do, right? Just, just one act of violence, just one act of violence for so much good. But David doesn't do it. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't do it. He trusts completely in the Lord. Now, the last example here is towards the end of the book in chapter 29. David is running from Saul, and he finds himself in the protection of none other than the Philistines themselves. It's a very awkward position that he's in. 
And it gets even worse. He finds himself in an even trickier situation because their king calls on David to go to war with them against the Israelites. Now, in God's providence, the Philistines change their minds, and David is spared from having to fight his own people. But while he's out with the Philistines, his camp is attacked by the Amalekites. Yes, the same ones that Saul did not completely destroy, and everything is taken from them. Wives, sons, daughters, everything is gone. And, and David does something that, to be honest with you, I, I've really struggled to understand. But it's something that he's done throughout this entire book. His heart, he sets his heart on God and he asks God what to do. Chapter 30, verses 6 onwards. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It says he inquired of the Lord Shall I pursue after this band? Everything has been taken from him. Everything. Who in their right mind would hesitate to go seek revenge? Well, David does. He stops. He strengthens himself in the Lord, and he asks God if he should go. His heart is fully surrendered to the Lord. He trusts completely in God's plans. Now, these examples should really challenge us. They've, they've really challenged me. Because there are many decisions before us in life that seem so obviously beneficial to us. Just an easy step towards a better life. A better job with a better salary. A chance at a romantic relationship. The opportunity to serve in church. Why would we pray about these things? Why would we read his word on the matter? Why would we seek the counsel of a trusted brother or sister in Christ? Why would we do those things? Well, because even when it seems obvious, these are opportunities to commit our hearts to God, to acknowledge our weakness before his strength and to seek his impressiveness over our own, to see that God's plans are greater than ours. I want to tell a quick uh, personal story. Um, seven years ago, Callie and I were living in the U.S., and we had a dream to move overseas. We wanted to move overseas, and to be honest with you, it wasn't a dream that, that came from faith. It was a selfish one. Um, we wanted fun and adventure. Uh, we, we wanted to do something impressive. And two options actually came up for me at work. One was in Australia, and one was in Singapore. Um, I had to interview for them, but Callie and I were thrilled. We were so excited at, at the opportunity. And I interviewed, and my company called, and sure enough, an offer to come to Singapore for three years. And you know what happened? Callie cried. And um, I didn't handle that very well, to be honest. Um, but I realize now that it was... God's grace to us because we had to stop and go to him and pray and ask him what we should do. And when we started praying, we felt God's call to be strengthened in our faith. That's what he wanted us to do. And so it wasn't just about fun and adventure for us anymore. We realized that we needed deeper relationships with Jesus. And so we started researching churches in Singapore and we started asking the question, is this a place where we feel like we can grow in our faith at this time in our lives? And through a few random connections, 
I emailed with this guy that I still have never met to this day, haven't talked to him since, and he gave us a church recommendation, RHC. And we arrived in Singapore on a Friday, and we were at RHC on Sunday, and we haven't left since. And I look back, and I see clearly that we had these illusions that this step that we thought was so simple and so easy to make our lives better, there was more to it than that. Deeper relationship with Jesus is what God had in mind for us. And I will admit to you that I did not have a heart like David's. I didn't have the strength to stop and to go to God. But by his grace, he interceded and he called us to think. And he brought us on this journey that we're both on to give us a heart like David's. We're still on that journey. David's heart was for the Lord, my friends. God honors David's faithfulness, and he fulfills his promises to David. And, in, and just as Hannah said in 2 verse 9, her prophecy is fulfilled. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. And the book of 1 Samuel ends with two victories for David by the hand of God. The first one in chapter 30, David pursues those Amalekites, and everything is restored. Everything is returned. And then in chapter 31, Saul goes to war against the Philistines, the war that David was spared from having to be part of, and Saul is killed. David didn't have to lift a finger. Trusting in God paid off. He delivered. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we could just like get into the head of David and access what he was thinking at this time? Well, you can because Psalm 57 was written by David when he was fleeing from Saul. Now, we don't have time to read it today, but I would really encourage you to go read that. As we conclude, I want to just quickly share one more story from this book, and that's in chapter 5. We, we skipped over it. What's happening in this, in this story is the Israelites, they foolishly take the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of God's presence among the people, into war against the Philistines. They think that it's going to help them win. And of course, they lose, and it's stolen by the Philistines. And in chapter 5, the Philistines, they place it in the house of their god, Dagon. And they treat it as this sort of trophy. But what happens is two days in a row, the Philistines, they wake up in the morning, they find the statue of their god, Dagon, lying on the ground. The second time, with its hands and its head cut off. And uh, chapter 5, verse 6 says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he, God, terrified and afflicted them with tumors. And then in chapter 6, they return the ark to the Israelites. Now, why do I mention this? Well, this is significant because the Israelites are nowhere to be found in this story. They're completely absent from it. Yet God destroys the Philistine idol, and he brings plagues on the enemies of the Israelites, his enemies. So here at 1 Samuel 5, we stand at the entrance of the monarchy of Israel. 1 Samuel 5 through uh, 2 Kings will chronicle roughly 42 kings across Israel and Judah. 450 years of history of Israel. By and large, it's a uh, disaster. But the people, they asked for a king, didn't they? And they got what they asked for. Many of them end up being evil. None of them are perfect, David included. 
But at the beginning of all this is a reminder in 1 Samuel 5 that without a single hand to help him, God can inflict fear and destruction upon his enemies. God is in control. He is the main character of 1 Samuel. And here in chapter 5 and all throughout, God shows that he does not need an earthly king. God is king. Saul was a picture of what it looks like to lose sight of that, to reject God in our hearts, and David is the opposite. He was a glimpse of what a perfect king could be, a heart that is humble and faithful to God. But David was an inspiration only as far as he trusted in God. He loses sight of that in 2 Samuel. And so, my friends, as we go through this series, the main theme to remember is that God is the true king of his people. Yet, his people asked for an earthly king. And beginning with David, God graciously set in motion a plan to establish the perfect earthly king. A man after his own heart, a prince over his people, his son Jesus. Jesus was not an earthly king in the way that the people wanted, but he was the heavenly king in the way that the people needed, in the way that we need. I know this to be true for you and for me. We need Jesus because we have the hearts of Saul and Israelites in us. At a macro level, we're like the Israelites. We need a leader to show us the way, to lead us back to glory and restore this broken world that has been marred by sin. And at a micro level, we're like Saul. We need someone to show us that we will never be as impressive as the world calls us to be. And we need a person who will accept us anyways. Jesus Christ is the total fulfillment of these things. He is God himself. The God of 1 Samuel had the humility to come down as a person in Jesus Christ. And this King Jesus set out on his own without even a smidgen of help from any of us to defeat our greatest enemy, stronger than the Philistines, sin. He put our sin to death on the cross through his own body, his own sacrifice, a royal king giving his life for you and for me in total faithfulness to God the Father so that we will never face God's rejection. On the contrary, we we become part of his royal family forever, welcomed into his victory over this world's brokenness, accepted into his love for all eternity. He does not need you to be impressive. My friends, God looks at the heart, and if he were to peel back the layers as he can do, and stare into your heart, who would be sitting there on the throne? Would it be you, or would it be Jesus? Set your heart on this King Jesus, and you will find that he has already set his heart on you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning, and we proclaim that you are our King. And we admit to you, Lord, that we don't always see it. We often seek to be the kings of our own lives, to control what's before us, to think that we know the best plan ahead. And yet, Lord, you are sovereign and you are powerful and you are loving and you are kind. And I pray, Lord, that you will intercede into our lives and you will show us your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Help us, Lord, to abdicate the throne of our hearts. 
Help us to give it to you. And so, Lord, here this morning, we want to respond to you. We want to open our hearts to you. We ask you to, to come in. We ask you to reveal the ways in which we might be like Saul. just want to give you time to reflect on this in your heart. Give this to God. Hand your heart to him. He seeks it. He desires it. He's already given his heart for you. He's shown his heart for you. Let's just take 30 seconds to respond. pray for those this morning who do not know you. I ask that you would draw them to yourself. I ask that they would see the beauty of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This king came down. He came down not in power, not with armies. He came down humbly as a man. He gave himself for us. He faced the rejection of this world so that we would not face the rejection of God. We praise you, King Jesus. We ask you to reveal yourself to those in this room who may not know you. Lord, we want them to give their hearts to you. Help us to be a community, Lord, that welcomes them, that invites them into this grace that we have known so well. For those of us who are Christians here, we ask that you would send us out into the world with this this knowledge, this truth, that you are our king. I pray that we would live in that truth. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing a closing song. Well, well. 
Singapore, we, we have the peace and comfort of worshipping you in this wonderful room here. And we know that not many places may have the, the luxury of doing so. And as our closing prayer, we'd like to lift up the nation of Israel into your hands as, as they battle the conflict that's ongoing right now in the country, in the south. Lord, we, we know that the enmity persists between them and the nations around them, the, the territories around them. We just pray that, Lord, you will, you will bring peace to that region, Lord. We know that politics there is contentious. We just ask that, Lord, you are the God of peace. You are sovereign over what's going on there. We pray that you will protect the people there. We pray that you will not let the innocents suffer. And we ask, Lord, that won't you bring about lasting peace, that there will be a way out. <clears throat> and we ask that, Lord, those who have suffered loved ones on either side, those who have suffered and lost people, Lord. We pray that, Lord, wouldn't you comfort them. We pray that, Lord, your, your gospel will be heard, your gospel will be preached even amidst these difficult times. And we lift up perhaps not just the people of Israel, but also folks who are suffering in the territories as well. And we ask that, Lord, there will be a mediator and we know that Ultimately, the horizontal peace only comes from the vertical peace through Christ. Through Christ that we may have this vertical peace with you. And only when that's established, Lord, will people stop fighting each other. And we look to the day where there will be no more wars, no more conflict, no more pain, no more suffering, and no more fighting. We pray all this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us remain standing as we end off with this doxology. Let's read it out together. From Romans, um, 
I say again from Revelation chapter 1, 5 to 6. To him, Well, thank you for joining us. Um, just two quick reminders. Um, if you have any lost and found items, especially water bottles, we have plenty found at the welcome desk. Uh, please claim them. If not, they will be removed and uh, thrown away by the end of the month. And for parents, uh, do pick up your kids immediately after this um, so that we can release the volunteers from their duties. And uh, make sure your stickers are ready for verification. Thank you and see you all next week. Goodbye. listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.